Today's guest on the show, I welcome Mark Yusko from Morgan Creek Digital Assets. Now, Mark, is, um, he's been investing a very, very long time and uh, knows a great deal about markets, and I can't wait to get into this uh, conversation with him and um, find out what his thoughts are around what's going on in the markets right now, which are very, very uh, choppy, to say the least, and his thoughts on Bitcoin and his involvement there. So, Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. No, thanks for having me. Excited to have the conversation. Well, I want to ask you a little bit about your background and um, what got you into investing all those yep. years ago and um, what, what you started doing back in those days. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I always say that uh, my life's been a series of happy accidents. So I actually didn't intend to uh, end up in investing. I actually went to school, to university to, to be an architect. Uh, didn't like that very much. Tried engineering because that's what dad wanted me to do. Actually, didn't like that very much either. And uh, actually had a girlfriend who said, hey, why don't you do what you want to do? I'm like, oh, that's a novel concept. So I really like science. Um, decided to go into biology and chemistry. Took that down the, the path of pre-med. Uh, decided very late, uh, very, very late, uh, post-MCATs. If you're going to decide not to be a doctor, do it before you take the medical college admissions test, which is a horrible experience. Um, but decided not to go to med school, went to business school instead, uh, right out of undergrad, which I don't advise, but for me it was great because I had no business classes, um, but I spent two years there, and then I went to work for this insurance company, and I was a, what's called a business analyst. Now, if I were a resume inflator, which, which I'm not, I would say I was an M&A analyst because I did spreadsheets for the CFO, and we bought little insurance companies where it's kind of an old roll up. And no one else knew how to do spreadsheets because spreadsheets were a new thing. I am actually that old. And uh, long story short, the guy who was doing investments retired. And my boss said, hey, let's, let's take over the portfolio. And that started down the path of investing in bonds. And then I left and went to work for an equity firm called Discipline Investment Advisors, learned about quant investing long before quant was cool. One of the cool things about that story is we were the very first quantitative uh, driven value fund. So we had this edge, right? You know, edge, I tweet about all the time, hashtag edge. That's what differentiates great investors from good investors. So what's your edge? Is it a access to information edge? Is it an analytical edge? Is it a processing edge? Is it a synthesis edge? You know, what is it that gives you uh, an advantage over other investors? And so we literally were the first customer of CompuStat and we got the tape physically four days before everybody else because it went out by the mail, the old snail mail. And so we had four days to run computer screens. This was before PCs, so we ran it on the, the computer at Northwestern University in the evenings. And we bought low price to book stocks before that was a thing. And we made a bunch of money. So did that. Uh, and then I got the call. I got the call to go back to my alma mater at Notre Dame. I worked in their endowment office for five years. I uh, was the number two guy, always gonna be the number two guy, number one guy is still there, we're, we're friends. And then I got the call to move to, to North Carolina where I am today and uh, it was a chance to be the CIO at University of North Carolina. And it was funny, so I said to my wife, I said, there's a job in North Carolina, she said, take it. I said, don't you wanna know what it is? She says, no, I just wanna live in North Carolina. And she was right, and it's awesome here and, and we love it. So I spent seven years running the endowment at North Carolina. And then 15 years ago, started Morgan Creek. 
uh, Moore Creek Capital Management. We do a bunch of different things around alternative investments. And then two years ago, we started Morgan Creek Digital Assets to focus on blockchain technology and crypto. Cool. Few questions for you. Yeah. Um, just, just to make sure listeners understand exactly what you mean by a few of those terms. Um, quantitative analysis. Could you just um, tell us exactly what, the, what you mean by that? Yeah, look, and, you know, in its purest form, it's, it's using computers to do large volume of, of processing of information to, again, give you an, an analytical edge. And you know, long ago, back in, in the late 80s and early 90s, that really wasn't a thing. I mean, there, there were no computers on your desktop. And uh, so we came up with this, this model of thinking about investing rather than the old you know, handwritten analysis uh, was using the computer to do the things that humans did and just do it faster and easier. And things like screening of stocks or, or you know, calculating earnings and things like that. You know, what's interesting about it is today, quantitative analysis and quantitative investing is kind of the norm. You know, 90% of daily volume is these high frequency traders and quant shops. And it's really doing some things that are, I don't really love to price discovery and the role of markets. Uh, we can talk about that later or maybe not. But, but quant investing at its core is taking these analytical frameworks that humans create and using computer technology to do it faster and better. You're right. I do want to come back to that later on because I think that's very pertinent what's going on right now in the markets. And I've got some questions around that for you. Now, you mentioned um, North Carolina University, become the CIO, Chief Investment Officer. Yeah. Yep. And that, I'm not sure like many people in the UK would understand that, um, that, that you have huge amounts of money to, to handle and grow for the yep. university. Uh, or maybe they do. I don't know. Um, no, huge, huge numbers. I mean, six hundred and eighty billion dollars across all the universities in the U.S. Uh, that is managed by teams of people uh, at each university, and some of these teams are quite large—20, 30, 40 people. Uh, our team at, at UNC was sixteen, eight on the investment side, eight on the operations side, um, but we were relatively small. We were a couple billion dollars you know, versus a Harvard at, at 40 billion or Yale at 30 billion. So there are big, big pools of capital. Uh, and there are a couple pools in the UK, um, you know, universities that everybody be familiar with that now have teams. But you're right, it's not as common outside the US as it is inside the US. And in fact, the endowment model of investing, which has been popularized over the last few decades, is referred to as a style of investing. Now, I'll argue it's really not only the endowments. It's any pool of capital that has a value bias that you know, uses external managers for their expertise and really is, is focused on discipline and taking advantage of the illiquidity premium, which is one of the ways you can get paid in investing. But, but that model of investing was popularized by people like David Swenson at Yale and us at Notre Dame and down at UNC, you know, Duke and, and uh, Princeton and all, all the big, uh, fancy schools, or I should say important schools. And it really is interesting how that methodology of investing has now permeated lots of different investors from smaller endowments and foundations to individuals, family offices, and even pension funds and sovereign wealth. That's staggering numbers. Yeah, big numbers, big oh, numbers. 
where does the cash come from exactly? Uh, from donors, right? So, you know, you graduate from university and in the States, as soon as you graduate, the development office is after you to give back to your alma mater. And, and part of it too is, if you think about a university, right? It exists to educate the students, but if you want to enhance the university, you've got to go seek out donors to fund new programs or new buildings or new facilities or, or new professorships or scholarships to attract better and brighter students. And so what, what endowments really do is they allow people to create new programs, new ideas inside the universities that make them better. And, and it's really a, an exponential kind of growth, right? If you take a great university and add more resources that are permanent, and this is the key, someone gives a million dollars, you only spend 5% of that million or $50,000 a year each year to fund the program. So that gift is made in perpetuity and it will endow this program forever, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that's crazy. Wow. Okay. Well, thanks for, um, thanks for giving us an insight on that. And um, what's, um, so then you, you started um, your, your own firm, which um, focused on investing for uh, private offices. Is that correct? Or um, what, what yep. you So our, you know, our first clients were smaller endowments, foundations, pensions that didn't have staff. Um, and then families, individuals or individuals, as I call them sometimes, you know, individuals with institution like capital. And then family offices, multifamily offices. And, and really, our goal was to bring this endowment model of investing to other investors. Now, again, what does that mean? It means a value bias, right? Buying things that are cheap and selling things that are expensive. A disciplined approach to rebalancing the portfolio and selling into strength and buying into weakness. I would say buy what's on sale. And then there's a, an advantage of or taking advantage of what's called the illiquidity premium. If you think about investing, there are only four ways we can make money, right? If we take no risk, we make no return. We get the cash rate, inflation chews that up, and so we basically break even. So we have to take one of four risks, and there's only four, right? But the investing is all about taking intelligent risk, risk that you get compensated for. So we can take credit risk, we can buy a bond, and the risk of a bond is it defaults and doesn't pay you back. But the good news, it's a contractual claim, meaning you can sue if they don't pay you. Now, you don't get paid much for that. You get 2% above risk-free. So if risk-free is four long-term, bonds make six. Today, risk-free is close to zero. Bonds make two, right? Simple math. Then you can take equity risk, right? Which is risk that it's a contingent claim, meaning equity holders only get paid if the bondholders get all their money back. So I look at, you know, Tesla's my favorite one to pick on, right? If you had to actually pay back the bondholders, there'd be no money left for equity holders. So I don't know why the equity has such a high number, except test lemmings are crazy. So that I think ends very nastily uh, as people realize that for 17 years, that company has incinerated cash. I joke, it's a cash incineration engine uh, instead of invest industrial or uh, uh, internal combustion engine. And so equity risk is just putting capital at risk and you get paid more. You get 5% above bonds, 7% above risk-free. The third risk you can take is illiquidity risk, right? I can buy a private equity investment instead of public equity. I can buy private real estate, private energy, private debt. And the only difference between private equity and public equity is I can sell my public equity to you today in the market 
If I want to sell you my private interest, we have to negotiate a price. We have to do a contract. It just takes longer to get liquid. But the cool thing is you get paid about 5% more for illiquid assets. So the best endowments, foundations, always are over-invested in private investments, private equity, venture capital, real estate, energy, et cetera. And then the last risk is just structuring risk, or it's a fancy term for leverage, right? If I buy a house for cash, it goes up 10%, I make 10%. If I borrow half the money, it goes up 10%, I make 20%. If I borrow 80% of the money and it goes up 20%, I make 100% of my equity. So the key is that those four risks should be compensated. And I will argue in the current environment, taking equity risk in most markets around the world, you're not being compensated. Illiquidity risk, you actually are being compensated. Credit risk, not really being compensated for. I think there's, there's lots of bonds selling it at not so high yields where there's a lot of credit risk. So I, w- I, wouldn't, I wouldn't buy those today. Um, but you want to find assets where the risk you're taking is being compensated. And one of the, this goes to one of the really important things. Most people think of risk as volatility, right? The volatility of share price. That's not risk. Risk is permanent impairment of capital, permanent loss, or trailing inflation over time. So the purchasing power of your asset gets destroyed. So people say, well, I don't want a volatile asset like Bitcoin. Well, wait a minute, volatility is your friend, right? Volatility gives you the ability to make a higher return. And yes, the volatility of Bitcoin is 73 plus percent, but the long-term compound return is 200% annualized. So that is a good risk reward, right? You're getting paid three units of reward for one unit of risk. Whereas I can take no risk in treasuries and actually lose to inflation. If inflation is running two and I get paid one, I lose money every single day. So that's a very risky strategy, even though people would perceive it as safe. So volatility isn't risk and people should actually seek volatility where you're compensated appropriately. That's a great point. And I don't, yeah, I really don't think people understand because they see the sticker price of Bitcoin going up and down and all over the place. And they're like, I don't have the stomach for that. But I think you've just put that argument to bed. Excellent. Um, right. So then let's talk about as well, something that, um, I think is being very misunderstood in, um, in the markets about Bitcoin and, um, this, and you are a great proponent of this, this non-correlation to yes. anything else. I think we've really got to drive home. That's it. Because I get texts from people to say, why would I, you know, it's not acting as a safe haven. I don't understand it. I, I won't touch it. And my yep. response is, it's non-correlated. Like, could you please, like, um, give your shtick? Now, look, this, this, is, this is the number one key point to understand about investing. And investing, again, I said, is, is about taking intelligent risk, risks that you get compensated for. But it's also about risk management and risk mitigation. Well, one of the most powerful forms of risk mitigation or risk management is diversification. And why does diversification work? Look, I I went to University of Chicago to get my MBA. I actually sat with Nobel laureates. I didn't know there were Nobel laureates at the time because they won later after I left. But I've been around a a long time. And so Harry Markowitz invented this, this construct of 
if you take assets that are uncorrelated, now what does uncorrelated mean? It means that things move independently of one another. It doesn't mean they move opposite direction. It just means if the price of milk goes up, the price of stocks doesn't care. Now, if they move together one day, you wouldn't say they're positively correlated. If they move down together one day, you wouldn't say they're negatively correlated. They're actually totally uncorrelated. The things that drive the price of milk are unlikely the things that drive the price of stocks, unless it happens to be a dairy stock, and then they'd be highly correlated. So correlation is just a measure of movement of two series of numbers. So if you think about history of investing, if you go back you know, 100 years, people thought the only thing to do as a fiduciary was to protect capital, was to own bonds, right? Because those were safe and you got paid back and you got income. Well, the problem of that, if you're getting paid 6% income and inflation's running at 6%, you're actually losing value, right? You're not, you're not making any money. And so that idea was then displaced by the idea that Harry Markowitz came up with, the capital asset pricing model that said, look, if I add an uncorrelated asset, an asset that moves differently, moves independently, and may have higher volatility on its own, when I take bonds and I add stocks, the risk of that portfolio is actually lower, not higher. Now that blew people away. They were like, that, that can't be right. Bonds have to be less risky. Well, no, they're more risky because you're gonna have a lower return and you're gonna to lose to inflation. By adding equity, which gives you a higher return, but will have volatility, but that volatility is dampened by the fact that bonds and stocks move independently of one another. Then if you add another asset, like real estate, that's also less correlated. What about hedge funds that are less correlated? And as each new asset is added to a portfolio, the overall volatility of that portfolio goes down, yet your return goes up, because you're adding higher return assets, Yes, they have higher volatility, but that correlation reduces the actual volatility and gives you a better outcome. And I'll give you a great example. If you go back five years ago, everybody talks about, well, 10 years, Bitcoin's been this great asset. Like the first five years don't really count. There wasn't anybody involved, you know, a handful of people from Silk Road, a couple of cryptography students. It just wasn't a very deep market. But five years ago, Okay, you could have taken 1% of the assets of all the endowments in the United States, that's $6.7 billion. You actually could have put it in Bitcoin. So you take half a percent from bonds, half a percent from stocks, from a traditional 60-40 stock bond portfolio, and go 59 and a half, 39.5, 1% in Bitcoin. And because Bitcoin is 0.15 correlated, it's one of the lowest correlation assets I've ever seen in my career. And again, I got the white hair to say I've been around to see all of these assets come and go to promise low correlation and none of them really have. I mean, bonds have 30% correlation, international stocks, 60% correlation, hedge funds, 50% correlated, you know, small cap stocks, 75% correlated. Those are high correlation numbers. Bitcoin is actually 0.15 correlated. So if you took that 1%, put it in Bitcoin over the last five years, okay, that endowments actually made 7.2%. Had they taken that 1% and put in Bitcoin, they would have made 9.2 compounded per year, 200 basis points more. And here's the cool part. Had it gone to zero, 
which five years ago was a non-zero probability, not a high number, but non-zero. Today, I'll say it's pretty darn close to zero. We can talk about that later, but you know, non-zero probability, you only would have gone down to seven. So your upside downside capture was 10 to one. That is a monstrous improvement in sharp ratio, return per unit of risk. You got the benefit of low correlation. You know, if you think back to May a couple years ago when the markets were down 5% and Bitcoin was up three because people did at that time view it as a safe haven. Well, last week people said, oh no, it went down just like stocks. Well, yes, when you have a big shock, right? One of the worst weeks in market history, I think the sixth worst, sixth worst in market history, and it happens quickly, what happens is people get margin calls. And when they have margin calls, they have to sell not what they want to sell, but what they need to sell, what's liquid. And unfortunately, some of that happened to be Bitcoin. So, you know, you saw gold go down as well. People didn't want to sell their gold. They just had to sell the gold to pay their margin accounts. So we've got this, this is a long answer. I would say I don't do short very well, but it's, it's, a, it's a really important question in that the benefit of uncorrelated assets is so vital to the construct of better long-term investing that if you can find an asset like Bitcoin or Ethereum, and I use those two as, as the best examples of cryptocurrencies with low correlation. And the reason is stocks and bonds derive their value, derive their upside return from the same criteria, GDP growth, interest rates, inflation, and economic growth, and, and, um, and earnings growth. If you think about cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, Ethereum, they derive their value from network adoption, Metcalf's law, from technological innovation, from millennial adoption, because there is a sea change going on between the boomers like me and the millennials who have a different view of what makes a great investment. You know, you ask somebody under 35, how much gold do you own? They're like, gold, why would I ever own gold? That's stupid. If you ask somebody over 35, how much Bitcoin do you own? They're like, oh, why would I own it? Zero, who, Bitcoin, that's stupid, it's a Ponzi scheme. If you ask somebody below 35, how much Bitcoin do you own? I don't want to talk about it. Why not? Well, because it's a really big percentage of my net worth and I'm kind of embarrassed because it's not what the capital asset pricing model would say I should have. Well, if you have a long time preference, right? If you really have a long time horizon, you should own highly volatile assets that are uncorrelated. If you think about the future for a millennial, your future income is like a fixed income stream. So you should own no bonds. You know, you're sub 60 years old, you should own zero bonds. Just makes no sense. As you get to be 60, 70, and you got 20 or 30 years left, then you could have a diversified portfolio. But if you're 30 years old, 25 years old, owning bonds, I actually think it should be against the law. Um, and I'm only half joking, uh, particularly in retirement accounts where you can't touch the money for 40 years. You should have it all in illiquid assets to get capture the illiquidity premium. You should have it all in uncorrelated high asymmetry assets like Bitcoin. And again, I'm not saying 100% Bitcoin, but I could argue one to three to 5% for a traditional investor like myself. I can make the argument for 10, 15, 20% for a, a young investor who has a 50, 60, 70 year time horizon. Wow. And completely agreed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I left you speechless. I like that. That's good. <laughs> well, 
I'm now thinking like, you know, I'm trying to picture you like coming up, like discovering this thing. Like yeah. that point, that point where like the penny dropped. Uh, the crypto light. When did the crypto light go on, right? Because you, you would have seen the whole asymmetrical thing. And I'm just imagining you dancing around your office or something. Because like how many times in your career would you have seen something like this? Even close. I'll, look, at that, that's actually one of the best questions I've ever been asked. That, I've, I've done a lot of podcasts. So that, that's, uh, that's one of the best questions I've ever been asked. Um, you're absolutely right. I, I, I actually, uh, uh, dancing, I'm, I, you know, Mark and dancing probably don't go together much. But um, yeah, it was something like that. But uh, here's the thing. I'm not exactly a genius on this. So six years ago, which is, you know, a reasonably long time ago. A good friend, Dan Moorhead, Pantera. Um, you know, he and I have been friends for 25 years. We backed him when he formed Pantera Macro, the hedge fund. Uh, that's something we've done a lot is back new managers when they, when they spun out of Julian Robertson's shop at Tiger. And Dan and I, you know, would get together a couple times a year and I was heading out to San Francisco, see my son. He said, hey, let's, let's get together for, for dinner. And we got together and he said, I'm shutting down the macro fund. I'm sending back a billion dollars to investors. I'm like, why would you do that? He says, look, I'm dedicating the rest of my career to this concept around about blockchain infrastructure and Bitcoin. And I would say, look, I was not dealing drugs on Silk Road. I was not a cryptography student. I didn't really know what Bitcoin was in 2013. I, I'd heard about it, but I didn't really know. And yet, here was a guy I respected saying he was going to change his life. He was going to give up a billion dollars at 2% management fees to go raise two funds, a blockchain infrastructure fund and a Bitcoin fund. Now, I'm a picks and shovels guy. I get infrastructure. I've made lots of money in my career, right? We were early investors in Google, turned half a million dollars into $200 million. There should be a quad at Notre Dame called the Google Quad. And we made a lot of money in Facebook and Alibaba and, and infrastructure companies around Internet 1.0, Internet 2.0, and now we got Web 3.0 coming later. And I think it's the biggest investment opportunity I've ever seen in, in my career. I think it's the biggest opportunity to create wealth around this blockchain technology. So when, when Dan said, you know, picks and shovels, the infrastructure to create Web 3.0, blockchain, I'm like, yeah, I'm in. Now, look, that was the first of my many bad decisions in crypto. because. I didn't go into the Bitcoin fund. I went into the blockchain fund. The blockchain fund's up 11X. No one would complain about 11X in six years. Really good. Should have gone in the Bitcoin fund because that's up 160X. So best performing hedge fund in the history of hedge funds. So I missed that one. And you fast forward about a year and I wrote about Bitcoin. Bitcoin had fallen from 1,000 to 500. And I wrote one paragraph in a 40 page investment letter that I send out quarterly. And it's funny, it was, it was right next to a paragraph on Saudi stocks. And I got less pushback on investing in Saudi stocks than I did in Bitcoin. People said they would fire us. We didn't stop talking about this stupid magic internet money. Like, huh, that's a violent reaction. And so I still was pretty intrigued and, and Dan was, was pretty compelling. But remember, it went from 500 down to 175 September of that year. I was like, all right, maybe I'm missing something. And, but then it started to go back. 
And it started to head back towards a thousand. And my son was graduating from college and he wanted to live in San Francisco. And, and I said, go talk to Coinbase or Zappo or one of Dan's companies. And just, you know, there's this movie, The Graduate, right? One word, plastics. And I said, go work for, for one of these firms. And like, all right, I'll go talk to him. So he went out and he talked to him. He was like, I don't know, dad, maybe it's going to be a big deal, but I want to live in San Francisco. KPMG made me an offer. I'm going to go there. And he went and uh, we had a chuckle about it, you know, last, last uh, Thanksgiving. He's like, all right, fine, dad. Yeah, maybe Coinbase would have been a good thing, but he's doing all right. He works for a company called Snowflake that is blowing up. I mean, they're awesome. And, and he's got there early and he's in privacy and he's doing great. But he said, you're not as smart as you think you are. I'm like, oh, do tell. And again, another one of my bad decisions he said, you didn't lever up the house and put it all in Bitcoin. Like, ah, that is a good point. So I bought some, but not enough. And so fast forward to two years ago, when we formed Morgan Creek Digital, I finally, that's when I had the aha moment. That's when I was dancing around the office or, you know, whatever you would call it. And the crypto light went on. And in fact, I wrote about this in a letter where I said I had my Eureka moment, actually in Eureka, California. I was in an RV driving from you know, Northern California down to San Francisco. And I literally had this Eureka moment where I went, wait a second, this is just technology. All we're talking about is the evolution of a technology platform, of a computing power platform that literally is going to revolutionize the world. And which, those, those sound like hyperbole. And look, I'm prone to hyperbole. And, but this is serious. This is really serious. If it, it hit me that what we're talking about is the operating system for the internet of everything or the internet of value. And it goes back to its roots. In 54, we had the mainframe, 68, the microchip, 82, the personal computer, 96, the internet, 2010, the mobile net, and 2024, the trust net or the internet of value. Now, why it's 14 years every time, I can't really explain that except it has to do with, with technology cycles. But here's the thing. What DOS, disk operating system, was to personal computers, what TCP IP protocol is to the internet, okay? What iOS and Android are to mobile supercomputers that we carry around in our hand. And there's a great picture I just tweeted out today a picture of the first Cray supercomputer from 1977 that has less computing power than your iPhone. Hard to even comprehend that or wrap your head around that. And that exponential growth in computing power is, is a really important thing. And here's the crazy thing. The Bitcoin network is 1,500x, not 1,500%, 1,500x more powerful than the world's most powerful supercomputer today. And that's because of all the hash power that's dedicated to the Bitcoin network. And so what we have is this opportunity to have for the first time money over internet protocol or MOIP. And if you think about information over internet protocol, right, it changed forever how we interact how, I mean, voice over IP basically changed the way we paid for telecommunication services. And now we've got money or value over IP. It will revolutionize the way we think and utilize money. And one of the coolest things about it is we can all, I, I say BYOB, which maybe I need to think of a better term, 
but it's not bring your own booze, it's be your own bank. So for hundreds of years, you and I and everyone else has been dependent on the banking cabal, right? The Rothschilds and, and the Medicis and, and all these powerful banking families, the Rockefellers and, and the Morgans have basically robbed from the poor to make themselves wealthy by being the trusted middleman in all transactions. Well, with the advent of triple entry accounting, distributed ledger technology, and the innovation of Bitcoin through Satoshi-san, whoever he, she, they are, it is one of the most revolutionary things that could happen because it allows now you and I to exchange value without a trusted third party. And the implications for that are, are mind numbing. I mean, so to your point, sitting in the office, literally celebrating, but also literally having my mind blown at how big and how expansive. And I use this analogy a lot. I say, what's two times two? And people say, four. I'm like, all right, what's 17 times 23? I'll wait. And that's been proven to be the limit of human intelligence. People can't do that calculation without a calculator. So I say, well, how are you, how are you at nonlinear regression? Probably not very good. How are you at exponential math? Probably not very good, right? If I take 10, I mean, sorry, 20 linear steps across my office, I get to the wall. If I take 20 exponential steps, I go around the world twice. So exponential math is really hard. And, and the idea that we're so early in such a monumental change in the way everything works in terms of value exchange, property exchange, rights, privileges, it's, it's truly extraordinary. So anyway, I went down lots of rabbit holes on that one. But what an answer. Like, you know, you, you, can't, you can't say that on CNBC, right? You get... <laughs> well, I, I do. I, I, yeah, you're right. They don't give you enough time. But I have said somewhat similar things on CNBC. And, and the, as, at what started a year and a half ago, they said, oh, you're just an outcast. Literally, they, they labeled me the outcast. And I'm like, huh, I'm okay with that, actually. Because actually, my pinned tweet is the greatest wealth is created by investing in something you believe in before others even understand. And so all great wealth comes from being an outcast. So I'm all about being an outcast. Although I can't sing like, uh, you know, the outcast guys. But um, can't dance, can't sing, probably need to stay on the radio. Uh, but, uh, it's, it's interesting when we think about where we are in this cycle, where we are in this evolution and the opportunities that are ahead of us. And in order to truly create wealth, you have to think differently, right? You know, Templeton says, if, if you do what everyone else is doing, you'll get the same returns as everybody else. And you have to be willing to step out of the pack and do things that other people either are afraid of or feel uncomfortable doing. And I, I used to say that, you know, if you make an investment and you feel good about it, you're probably going to lose money. If you make an investment and you feel sick to your stomach, you're probably going to make a lot of money. And so I used to say my job was to maximize the discomfort of my board, right? To make them as uncomfortable as possible because then they do the right thing. But then I realized, no, you can't maximize the discomfort because if you maximize it, they just get rid of you because you're an irritant. 
So you have to optimize the discomfort. You have to say things that get people on edge, but not so on edge that they say, I'm just not going to listen to you. And that's a very delicate balance because you have to push and you have to think independently and, and think differently. In fact, a friend of mine, Vikram Mancharamanti, just wrote a book, you know, Think for Yourself. And probably the most important thing to do today is to think for yourself. Get out of the echo chamber of Twitter, get out of the echo chamber of the mainstream media, and actually take in the data and think for yourself. And you know, I, I, I like weaving in pop culture. So I just watched Knives Out last night. And you know, the main character in this movie is a detective. And he has this great uh, analogy where he talks about the arc of truth. And he says, my job is to sit dispassionately and observe the data. Talk to everybody and just listen and observe the data. And then visualize the arc of that projectile and then walk to its terminus and the truth will land at my feet. I'm like, oh my gosh, that is incredible. I mean, that's exactly how we should invest, right? But most people do it the opposite. They form a belief first and then they reject all data that is counter to that belief and they accept things that support their belief, even if their belief might be wrong. So what you should do is look at the data then make a decision. And this is why I love science. And this is why I love my science background. I say science happens to be the best training for investing because science is all about the scientific method. You form a hypothesis independent of bias and belief. You test the hypothesis, you gather the data, you look at the data dispassionately and whatever the data says is right or wrong. Not what you believe, but what the data says. And if you're wrong, you have to reform a hypothesis, form another experiment, do another test. But most of us do the opposite. We say, no, I'm right, the market's wrong. So I'm gonna double down on my losers. That's a good way to go bankrupt. What you should do is cut your losers, admit you're wrong, say I'm wrong. And uh, you're probably too young to remember Arthur Fonzarelli, right? He couldn't even, uh, from Happy Days, the TV show in the US, he couldn't even say the word wrong, right? He would say, he couldn't say I was wrong. And being wrong is really, really critical to being a great investor because you're never going to be right all the time. Like the, the legends of investing are right 58, 59% of the time. You should aspire to be right 51, but you're probably going to be right about 40% of the time. They say you have a 50-50 chance until you think and then your odds go down. So if you're only going to be right 40% of the time, you probably don't want to press all your bets. You probably want to cut your losers really fast but don't do what most human beings do, which is pull their flowers, right? They pull their flowers and water their weeds. We should let our winners run. And in fact, the greatest investor of all time, in my mind, uh, Julian Robertson, and I've been lucky, right? I, I would say better lucky than, than smart. I've been lucky to have him as a friend and mentor for, you know, 20 plus years. And one of the things that everyone who ever left his shop I've interviewed and I've said, what, what made him so great? Why was he the greatest identifier and trainer of talent? Why was he such a great investor? And they all had this interesting thing to say. They said, look, he had this uncanny ability to double up, to actually press the winning trades. And I'll give you a great example. So, and Bitcoin is, is like this relative to people saying, oh, Bitcoin's too volatile to hold. No, it's not. I'll give you something even equally volatile. 
Amazon. Amazon has been a public company for 20 years. In every year, including this year, it's had a double digit drawdown, highly volatile. The average drawdown, just let this number sink in for a second, is 31%. Twice it went down more than 90%. So who actually bought it in 98 and held it to today? No one, except Jeff and his mom and dad, that's it. Because everyone else gets shaken out by that volatility because they weren't willing to say, look, this is a revolutionary breakthrough technology and I want to press that bet. I don't want to run away from it. I want to press that bet. So I look at it the same way with, with Bitcoin today. People say, well, when are you going to sell? I'm never going to sell, right? It's, it's an asset that I want to own forever because it's a network. It's like Facebook, like Amazon, like Microsoft. These are networks and they grow very differently than companies and they have value accretion. You know, in the old days, in order to own a network like Facebook or Amazon, you had to own the hierarchical structure. You had to own the equity of the, the corporation. Today, there's no corporation, right? It's a network. It's a protocol. So you have to own the protocol itself. One of my favorite things is when they uh, had Zuckerberg go in to uh, defend Libra. And the, the joke was, you know, they subpoenaed the CEO of Bitcoin, but he was unavailable. <laughs> yes, very good. So you, you get it. You understand <laughs> it. You, right. you see it. But, you know, you're like, like you've, you know, you kind of said earlier, you're, you're neat the older age band. Um, and I'm sure many of your clients are probably of that, that age band as well. How then do you go and try and educate other people around it? And like you said, you know, you've got to, you've got to do it delicately, take people out of their comfort zone. And um, people would say, you know, shill lightly in, in Bitcoin kind of parlance. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And then you face people on TV as well. Some of your, um, you know, your, you know, well-known network on TV are kind yeah. of like get the sneers and whatever else on CNBC. But you're out there and you're doing it and you're fighting the fight and you're trying to spread the word. But how much pushback are you still finding? And, and how oh, do you- no, look, that, look, the pushback is, is incredible. And, and there's a cool analogy for that, which is you can judge the quality of an idea by the quality of its opposition, right? and the vehemence of that opposition. So if I throw something out, like I use Twitter like this all the time, I'll throw something out. I may not even believe it just to see what kind of pushback I get. Because if I don't get any pushback, I'm like, oh, that's a crappy idea. But if I get really great pushback, okay, now I'm onto something. Now let's have some discussion. And so the more pushback you get on any idea, and you know, Will Durant says it best, right? Every custom begins as broken precedent, right? Everything that we take for granted today at one time was not believed. It was heresy, right? You know, the world or or everything in the universe revolved around the earth. Clearly that was wrong, but you know, people literally were accused of being witches if they disagreed with that. So, you know, the conventional wisdom is really a dangerous thing because Again, people won't think for themselves. And so my job, I believe, once I had this aha moment, once I you know, saw the crypto light, so to speak, I felt like, look, I, I, I've always liked to help educate. 
I think, you know, one of the things that, that if you're given a gift, whether it's a gift to be on a podcast like this or a gift to speak uh, at a conference or be on television, your job should be to say something that people don't already know, right? Because you're, you're given the gift to, to speak. If you tell something they already know, then you're not really helping them. And it should be to help educate in a way that elicits action, whether that action is research, whether it's debate, whether it's dialogue, anything that, that elicits action. In fact, I've, I've, my wife's only seen me speak one time. So she came to one conference and saw me speak. And at the end, she says, you, you can't say things like that. I'm like, what do you mean? She says, well, you say things with such conviction. I said, well, what's wrong with that? She says, well, well people might believe you. I'm like, that's kind of the idea. She says, but, but what if you're wrong? I said, well, I'm wrong all the time. And I just changed my mind. And the key is that I want people to push back, right? I want people to say, whoa, he's full of crap. Because then, now we can have a dialogue. Now we can have a debate. So how do I educate? So, you know, we do a monthly po- or a web webinar. And, uh, you know, we're doing one next week on the coronavirus. And, and, you know, we've done three on crypto. We did one, Blockchain 101, which is just kind of a primer on, on blockchain. Then we did crypto capitalism, why I believe every stock, bond, currency, commodity, and everything of value in the world will be tokenized and we'll do everything in capitalism on the blockchain. And then the third was called get off zero, hashtag get off zero, which is my thing that look, 10 years from now, you'll look back and if you're a fiduciary and you have zero exposure to crypto assets, you will be derelict in your fiduciary duty. And so we put those out on YouTube. So there's a website or a a YouTube channel. If you type in Mark Yusko on YouTube, it'll pop up around the world with Yusko. And there's probably 30 or 40 presentations on everything from China to oil to, you know, uh, US stocks plus these three presentations on, on crypto basics, then it's you know, going on television and, and saying the things that people don't wanna hear. And, and look, the more people don't wanna hear it, the more important it is to say. And I don't mean go on and say crazy stuff, but this is not crazy. This is, as I said, this is an evolution of technology. There's no way this genie's going back in the bottle. There's no way we're going to not adopt triple entry accounting, far superior than dual entry accounting. There's no way we're not going to use technology for the internet of everything. Because if you think about it, humans can't process as fast as computers, right? We talked about quant investing, right? If, if I tried to create a 200 page model in a spreadsheet, it would take a long time. A computer can do it instantaneously. It can run thousands of iterations and Monte Carlo simulations. That gives me more time to think and be and use judgment. The one thing computers can't do is judge, right? They can process, they can be analytical, but they don't have judgment. And the human combo with technology is incredibly powerful. So I'm not a fan of all tech or all human. I like the combo. And so and maybe not, you know, implanted, but, but I like using the technology to, to make me a better investor. So the more time any of us can spend thinking about big ideas, about future trends, the better we'll be in terms of, of making investment decisions because we'll be less focused on the now and more focused on what's next. And, you know, we're in basketball season, about to be March Madness over here in the U.S. next week or two weeks. And, you know, I had this privilege, again, about uh, five or six years ago, to spend an hour with Coach K, 
you know, legendary coach over at Duke, winningest coach in, in basketball history. And we're, we're having this conversation about halfway through. He says, you know, our businesses are exactly the same. I'm like, oh, okay, coach, humor me. How, is, how am I anything like the greatest coach in the history of basketball? He says, well, look, we both search the world for talent, identify talent, put together a team, rec or recruit the talent, put together a team. We put the team on the floor and we sit down. Uh, huh. Our businesses are exactly the same. You're right. He says, look, I never take a shot. You never make a direct investment. You're putting teams to, of managers together. I said, okay, that's exactly right. Now we've changed our business a little bit since then. We do more direct investing, but at the time we were a fund of funds, exactly the same. And he said, but do you know the key is what separates great investors from average investors? I'm like, no, I, I would love to know. He says, look, average investors always focus on the last play. Great investors or great athletes always focus on the next play. So how many times have you seen a basketball player miss a shot, go down and commit a stupid foul? Because they're thinking about the last play. And Michael Jordan talks about this all the time. He says, I've missed thousands of shots, right? I completely forget. As soon as I miss a shot, I don't care. I back, play hard defense, steal the ball, make a layup. That's focusing on the next play. And the same is true as investing. If you make an investment mistake, which we all do, and you constantly focus on it, you're going to make another mistake. Whereas if you're constantly looking forward to the next opportunity, you're going to be better. So the other, you know, legendary coach, Dean Smith, in the right color blue uh, from North Carolina, had, had said it best. With, with mistakes, you need to Ralph. You need to recognize it. You need to acknowledge it. You need to learn from it you need to forget it. And if you can't do those four things, if you can't see that you made a mistake, actually admit or acknowledge that you made the mistake, learn from it and say, hey, what should I do different next time? And then forget it and focus on that next play. So the, both coaches saying the same thing. And the same is true with investing. If we can't look forward and anticipate trends and, and look for opportunities, then we're going to have inferior performing, performing portfolios. And so how does this all come back to education? It comes back to, look, I feel like it's my job or my mission to do things like this, to talk to people wherever I can to say, look, yes, this is a scary evolution of technology, but it's no more scary than when people said, I'm not going to put my credit card on the internet. No way. No way. I remember the first time we were definitely afraid of it. And then what happened, we went to the dry cleaner. We gave our car to the dry cleaner. And by the time we got home, the girl at the dry cleaning store had charged $700 on our credit card. I'm like, well, if that can happen with a human being, it's probably way more safe encrypted on a website at Gap. So, and since that day, we've used a you know, credit card on the internet and never had a problem. Plus, you got Visa who will you know, reimburse you if something bad does happen. So, technology makes things better, but it's really scary at the beginning. And once people have that aha moment that what Bitcoin is, what blockchain is, is technological evolution, it becomes less scary. When you think about it as an operating system that eventually will become invisible. And that's the key. Every great innovation starts in your face and it's rejected by the masses. And who adopts it? The fringe, the bad guys. Who is the first user of, you know, a pager? Drug dealers. How about the internet? Porn. Okay. And now we all use the internet. And 
it's not a problem. But at the beginning, it's only the fringe that is forced to use new technology because the old technology, you know, take cannabis today. You can't get a bank account. So what do they do? They use crypto. Interesting use. And so over time, the masses adopt it and that technology becomes invisible. I don't know how my cell phone works. I don't care. The fact that I can talk into it, or how about this? I'm talking into my screen in high def, coming to you across, you know, a third of the way around the world, and we're having a conversation. I don't need to know exactly how that works. I don't care because it's in the background. And that's the same thing that's going to happen with crypto. As that adoption increases, it will become invisible. We'll all use it like it's second nature. Um, so anyway, long answer. <laughs> but again, a very, very good one. And agree with all of your points there. Um, and I want to talk to you about like what's going on right now with markets, because I, you know, while I have you, um, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about Bitcoin and I think we're getting definitely uh, a picture of your view there. Um, watching your tweets unfold over the last uh, couple of weeks around coronavirus and now understanding more about your medical background and your science knowledge and your passion for this, that, that you know, I've just joined a few dots there. So you've clearly got something to say about what's going on with coronavirus. And I wanted to ask you about your thoughts around that and whether that is somehow being tied into um, um, manipulating markets in some way. Um, so what's happened? Yeah, this, I love this rabbit hole because it, 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 it incorporates all the things that I love to talk about. So, so we got the Fed and the other right. central banks around the world. Look, manipulating markets is what they do. And, and there's a reason for it, right? If you think about governments, the history of governments for millennia, I mean, thousands of years, is that governments will become increasingly concentrated, right? They'll become increasingly like dictatorships. And as that happens, the cronies, those at the top, get all the wealth. And income inequality spreads. And then when it gets to a certain point, they collapse. And whether it's the French Revolution or whether it's the fall of the Roman Empire or the Ottoman Empire, by the way, you never want to be called an empire because all empires fall. British Empire, Ottoman Empire, you know, empires fall. So we got the American Empire, it's in the middle of falling. And the reason is that if you think about how governments function, they profligately spend to enrich themselves and you become career politicians instead of public servants. And then you forget that the only way to do that is to finance it with debt. Well, debt, doesn't work in a hard money world. In a gold standard world, you can't just you know, increase debt forever. So what'd they do? Everyone went off the gold standard. So we created what I call the fiat fiasco. So you'll see my hashtag about that, fiat fiasco. And so now all these central governments around the world can print money anytime they want. And they can devalue their currency. And, and that is what I call the dictator playbook. What a dictator does is they get in power, they get all the assets for them and their cronies, and then they devalue the currency. Think about Zimbabwe, think about Venezuela, think about Argentina, that's what happens. It's actually happening in Japan, it's happening in Europe, it's happening in the United States. It's not quite as extreme, but what's happening is the wealth is concentrating at the top, the bottom is getting screwed, because think about it, inflation is kleptocracy. It's theft of wealth from the lower class, because the people at the top who own all the assets their nominal value of those assets goes up. Like what was the best performing stock market in the world last year? Venezuela. Who wants to own Venezuela? 
nobody outside of Venezuela. But if you're inside Venezuela and you own the stock market, you made a lot of money in nominal terms. Now the boulevard got cremated and that's what happens. And so the key to success for a government is once you incur all that debt, you have four choices. You can pay it back. You can default on it. You can um, change the terms or you know, extend it, or you can inflate it away. Well, let's go through the options. They can't pay it back. Never have. Not, not once in history has anyone paid back the government debt. They can't default on it because if you default on it, then you get kicked out of power. And the people at the top like being in power. You can change the terms and that's what they do. They extend, they issue longer duration bonds. You saw Argentina issue the century bond. So they, they try that. But then what they all do eventually is they inflate it away. They devalue their currency. So we're stuck in this scenario where fiat currency, unsound money, is being devalued, which is why gold, right, which is the original hard currency, for 5,000 years has been sound money, right? One ounce of gold for 5,000 years buys a fine man's suit. Go to Savile Row, fine man's suit, 1,500 bucks, about where gold is, bingo. So what does all this have to do with market manipulation? Well, it has to do with central banks have realized that to stay in power, because they're appointed by governments, they have to do the bidding of the bureaucrats and technocrats at the top, and so they have to continually print money. Well, that printing money, if everybody does it, then it's like boiling a frog, right? The populace is getting fleeced, the wealth is moving up the capital structure, which is what the government officials want anyway, because they all want to be rich, as do the cronies who support them, right? The politicians, I mean, the, the corporate CEOs. And so then what happens is you get into a situation where suddenly someone says, wait, the emperor is naked, right? Literally, the emperor has no clothes, fairy tale comes true. And it happened in 2000 when people said, wait a second, Microsoft and Cisco, Cisco was the, was the poster child. Cisco, at the peak in 2000, was selling at $286 for every dollar of earnings. Now, to make a 10% return, to turn a dollar into $286, a 10% compound return, you'd have to live about 400 years. Unlikely, right? And if you know how to do it, I would say, shoot me an email, do fountainyouth.com together, but unlikely. So there was no... There was no debate that at some point, Microsoft, Cisco, Intel, and Qualcomm, the Fab Four, were going to go down. And if you bought those four stocks in 2000, when everybody said they were can't miss investments and held them to today, 20 years later, guess what? You're down. The only one that's up is Microsoft. The other three are negative and that portfolio is underwater. Crazy. So here we are today with the fangs. And everybody says, oh, you've just owned these stocks you can't miss. No, for the next 20 years, they're going to be dead money. And the only thing that will save them in central banks' mind is lowering interest rates. So the discount rate gives you the ability to discount the future cash flows at a higher value. But here's the problem with that. High interest rates are a sign of economic strength. Low interest rates are a sign of economic weakness. Economic weakness in the future means that you should actually discount future cash flows at a lower rate because they're going to be smaller, because growth is going to be slower. So you've seen growth collapse everywhere, Japan, Europe, 
U.S. Now, the real problem with that is it has to do with one simple thing, demographics. Right? Every single day, 10,000 people where I'm sitting and 10,000 people where you're sitting turn 65. Every single day for the next 17 years. The boomers are aging. And it turns out 65 to 85 year old people don't spend as much. They buy bonds, not equities. So there's a huge preference for fixed income securities, as we talked about earlier. When you're 30, don't own bonds. When you're 70, own lots of bonds. And the key is all of those things go into this manipulation. And on top of it, we created this thing called passive investing or dumb investing, as I call it. People try to call it smart beta, biggest oxymoron, jumbo shrimp, military intelligence, oxymoron. Beta is dumb. And I don't mean dumb unintelligent. I mean, it's rule-based. So what an index does is it buys things as they become more expensive. It is a momentum strategy. And when liquidity from central banks is expanding, momentum is a great strategy, like in the late 90s. But the problem is once the central banks have to contract liquidity to fight inflation, which eventually will happen from too much excess liquidity, then the uh, value of those assets implodes. And so you've got this, this problem that the central banks are doing what they're incented to do. And ultimately, they're going to they're gonna sow the seeds of their own demise. And this passive wave of investing, which buys things as they become expensive, which is the antithesis of the endowment model, which you're supposed to buy what's on sale, and the best example is tech versus energy. From 90 to 2000, tech outperformed energy dramatically. And at the bottom in 2000, nobody wanted to own energy again ever. In fact, I took energy to my board at UNC and my chairman said, Mark, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard in my career. But if you really want to do it, fine. And we put 5% in following Richard Rainwater, one of the greatest investors of all time. And that 5% generated 25% of the endowment's returns the next 10 years. Not because we were geniuses, but because things were really cheap. Then for the next 10 years, energy outperformed tech. Then from 2010 to 2020, tech outperforms energy again. Now we're at this extreme passive inflated bubble. And once it pops, and it will pop, we're going to go through another decade where, if you go back to 2000, you know, Seth Klarman, famous value manager at Baupost, he could not raise a penny in 2000. People said value investing was dead. You need to be a momentum and growth investor. You need to be passive. And value was dead because he had underperformed the S&P for 10 years in a row. He'd still compounded close to 10%, but the S&P was up close to 14. And everybody said he was an idiot. The next 10 years, the S&P compounded at minus 1.9% for 10 years. He lost money for a decade. And Seth was up 17.8 compounded per year for a decade way better. And that's going to happen in the next decade. Now, whether it starts this year or next year, I don't really know. That's not the point. I do think, and bring this all back to current events, I do think that the coronavirus, which I do not think is as big a deal as everybody else, and I think there's a lot of reasons behind that, which we can talk about, and as I'm doing the, the webinar next week about it, but the key is that it is a catalyst that's getting people, I think, to overreact you know, the Chinese overreaction now, you know, France saying they're going to ban all outdoor uh, meetings or events or, or festivals. That's insane. I mean, we're talking hundreds of cases, not millions of cases. This is not Spanish influenza in 1918. To compare 2020 and 1918, 
is comical, right? We have totally different hygiene, sanitation. We don't have open air sewers. It just, it's just a silly comparison. And so people get afraid and panic and fear are really profitable for certain types of companies. So they stoke that fear. And so now we have the overreaction, which I think will catalyze a drop and with high, high valuations that will cascade. And it's very, very similar to what happened in 2001. We had a garden variety recession cooking and 9-11 came along and everybody said, nope, not going to fly, not going to travel. Everything's bad. And again, not that the 3,000 people that lost their lives in 9-11 aren't critically important and, and tragic, but you didn't need to stop the world because the whole world was not going to get attacked. It was a horrific tragedy, but it wasn't going to be an, a pandemic or endemic around the world, but the world slowed down. So we had a massive collapse in GDP. We went into recession and then you had this massive over levered bubble with WorldCom and Enron. And 2002 was actually the really crappy year. 2001 was only down 14%. 2002 was down 22%. So peak to trough, we fell close to 45%. I think that's going to happen again because the debt bubble this time is way bigger than 2002. So all of this kind of lines up and this catalyst says, hmm, it could get ugly. And then the unwinding of the passive bubble turns, uh, George Soros writes about this, reflexivity, right? Reflexivity says that the actions of the participants in a market can change the market. So as more people buy passive investments, they go up. And as stock prices go up, people can borrow more money and companies actually do improve, right? So then what happens is people buy more stocks. So it becomes a virtuous cycle, a self-fulfilling bubble. But once it pricks, and how do you know when it pricks? So again, back to science. We know that when water either turns to steam or ice. What happens? The molecules start to vibrate very fast, right before the phase shift. The same thing happens in markets. When markets start to be very volatile, like they have in the last week, up four, down four, up three, down three. That only happens around phase shifts from bull markets to bear markets or bear markets to bull markets. So we're about to have a phase shift and water is about to turn to steam and vaporize. And we're gonna go into a bear market, I believe. And that phase shift goes from a virtuous cycle to a vicious cycle. And I'll give you one example. Maybe the dumbest investment idea in the history of bad investment ideas, low volatility ETFs. Their sole criteria for buying a stock, not the value of the company, not the quality of the leadership, not the stock uh, price relative to its earnings, the volatility of the stock price. So think about it. As more people buy it, volatility goes down. So they have to buy more. Volatility goes down. They have to buy more. It's a self-fulfilling cycle. Ah, but as soon as people have to sell for meeting a margin call, whatever it is, then volatility starts to rise. They have to sell more. Volatility starts to rise. They have to sell more. And it becomes a self-liquidating investment. And I think we're on the verge of that. And so. We're in a very precarious situation. I think we're in a phase shift. I think it's time to be hedged, time to own real assets, time to own non-correlated assets, time to own some gold, time to own some Bitcoin, and time to be 
more diversified than less, take those chips off the table and get uh, in a protective stance. And if I could ask you one, one more question about, you know, the, the difference between like the last time this happened, as you said, 0102, or uh, if we look at 08, um, yep. how different the market is now with regards to the HFTs, the high frequency trading, um, the, the algos, the quants. Um, the way I understand it is um, these machines, they're scanning headlines night and day. And yep. that will either they will buy or they will sell on the back. And they are now a huge segment of the market. Could you talk a little bit about that? So like um, how that's taken? Yeah, look, it's yeah, the, the, the evolution of quant. You know, the evolution of quant is, is really a, a, a frightening thing. You know, it's kind of the, the Frankensteining of, of markets in that in the early days of quant, it, it made sense that um, you could use this screen and you could gain an edge to, to cheap assets or, or momentum assets. But as to your point, as more and more of the trading up to 90% on a daily basis is dominated by these algos, it's removed the human judgment element from price discovery. So an algo buys based on price movements, not on valuation, not on attractiveness, not on long-term prospects, just on price movement. And so it exacerbates the trends, both up and down. And as we shift, as somebody finally wakes up and says, oh, the emperor has no clothes, and paying 30 times earnings for companies like Hormel and Campbell that don't have any growth is insane, that's going to change. And so as those things start to change and as that reflexive movement goes from virtuous to vicious, those high frequency traders will exacerbate the downturn. So I think that's why we'll see a much more dramatic shift. And I, you know, I, I say hashtag risk uh, happens fast. It's really critical that, yeah, I joke about it, Shakespeare was right, right? In matters of great import, like your wealth, it's better to be three hours early than a minute late. And so, yes, by being early, you're going to be ridiculed. You're going to be chastised because, you know, oh, you don't get it. And the, the world's passed you by. And, you know, this is a different market. Yeah, it is until it's not. And when it's not, you can lose far more than you've gained in the short run. And I think that's, that's the risk of where we are today. And so back to being disciplined, being focused, and understanding that the things that we all praise used to an extreme can be very dangerous, whether that's quant analysis, quant trading. Um, and you know what they say, all things in moderation, including moderation. So I think uh, now's a very good time to be a little more diligent in risk management, risk mitigation, and be cognizant of those risks created by those, those quant uh, impacts in, in markets. Interesting. Well, let's, um, let's round it up then and talk about um, your work with uh, a couple of young, uh, young guys that, uh, that you created Morgan Creek Digital Assets with. And yeah. um, many people know Pomp and his show, which uh, he does a great job. Um, do you want to talk about yep. um, how you guys, um, there's three of you, right? Jason as well. That, um, yeah. you guys yep. Jason, Pomp and I. It's, it's, a, it's a great story. So, you know, um, said we have always been, 
investors across lots of different asset classes, private markets, public markets, hedge fund markets. And about, you know, 10 years ago or so, we started doing much more in direct investing in single deals. So we put together special purpose vehicles around, you know, Facebook or Alibaba or, you know, whatever it happened to you, oil gas gathering facility, um, could be lots of different types of investments. And we got very interested in ride sharing about five, six years ago. We invested in Uber, we invested in Lyft, Grab, Ola, Didi, um, all these, these companies around the world. And, and in one of the later stage rounds of Lyft, we met these two guys. I met these two guys, you know, Jason and Pomp, and they were investing some capital from friends and family uh, in Lyft. We went together and you know, we spent 15 minutes together, didn't think much of it. Um, but, you know, I met him. And I don't know, maybe back to how great podcasts are. I was probably, you know, two months later, I was listening to uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy's pod. And it was only 20 minutes with Pomp. And I was like, wow, that guy's pretty smart. I, I'm going to follow him. And I started following him on Twitter. And everything he said, like, 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 wait, I would say that. That sounds like me. And I always joke, it's like talking to myself, younger, better looking version, but everything was so similar. I said, I got to meet this guy. So we got together for breakfast. One hour turns into three, turns into the next day, eight hours later, like, well, we got to do something. And we found a way to collaborate. And so we kind of came together and, and merged what they were doing at Full Tilt with Morgan Creek to create Morgan Creek Digital. And what I love about it is the three generations. So Pumps, young 30s, Jason, young 40s, me, mid 50s. And we bring a very unique skill set. You know, I've built an asset management firm. Jason's a serial entrepreneur in the healthcare field. And Pomp is this, this technological maven and maverick that, that really gets people excited. And he's a great communicator. And he's got a unique skill set for someone of, of his relatively young age in that he's able to discern ideas very quickly and to communicate them very effectively, but also he does through his podcast, find really, really smart people and spends time with them, which makes you smarter. I say, I had the greatest job in the world, right? I've been paid for 30 plus years to travel around the world and talk to the smartest people in the world. That's really cool. And if I can't learn something from that, then I'm an idiot. But I've actually learned some good stuff and I've met with Nobel laureates. I've met with heads of state. I've met with some of the greatest investment minds on the planet. And it just makes me smarter to spend time with them. And I think Pomp's done the same thing with his podcast. And so that combination of things, plus, look, I have a, I have a, a unique family. I have two older kids, 30 and 28. And then I have a little guy who's nine. And everybody says, oh, when did you get the new wife? My same wife. And they're like, well, that's, that's not possible. I said, well, it is. So yeah, we were 47 when we had our last. And, and it's awesome. And that keeps me young, but hanging out with the younger people in the crypto space is really keeping me young. And I actually say, I'm, other than my hair, I'm reverse aging. I have more enthusiasm. I have more energy. I'm, I'm thinking about new ideas uh, in, in different ways. And, and I think it's just, really critically important. Again, back to my mentor, what made Julian so great? In, he didn't even start his hedge fund until he was in his 50s. And what did he do? He hired a bunch of 20-somethings to hang out with and learn from. And he would mentor them, and then he would learn from them as well. 
And so hanging out with really smart young people, I think is critical because I like to think I have a little bit of wisdom and knowledge and all that means wisdom is just, you made a mistake, you learn from it, right? It doesn't mean you're any smarter. It just means you made mistakes because you've been around. And so that combination of a little bit of wisdom, the, the, uh, the brilliance of Jason as a serial entrepreneur and, and Pomp's youthful enthusiasm and that ability to, to really dig deep into something, I think is a formidable combination and has allowed us in a very short period of time to become one of the kind of the go-to firms in the crypto space. And we're very grateful for that. Even though there are a couple of test lemmings. You're, 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 ah, that's, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> if one, if, if I would say if two people always have the same opinion, one is unnecessary and we like to be necessary. So difference of opinion is really important. And, uh, you know, they say that the sign of intelligence is to be able to hold two opposing thoughts at the same time without going crazy. And we as an organization can do that, right? I can be very much against Tesla equity, the equity. I'm not against Tesla, the company. I'm not against Elon personally. I'm against owning Tesla equity at these prices because I think, I actually believe the equity is worthless. Now, is it possible through reflexivity that he could save it by manipulating the stock because there's not a lot of free float and he can squeeze the shorts, which allows him to raise money, which allows him reflexively to maybe get through. Possible. But here's the problem. This company, as I said, has never made money in 17 years, unlikely to ever make money. And at the end of the day, I don't believe, I have a hashtag for this too, red is the new black. I actually don't believe that losing money is a good investment strategy. However, if you look around the world, the highest valuation companies on the planet lose the most money because there's this whole growth at any cost mindset, which I think we've seen this movie before. Unfortunately, most people investing today weren't even born or in high school back in 2000 when I was living through it. And I've heard all the same stories, right? It was all about eyeballs back then. It was all about growth. It was all about profits don't matter. Profits matter. Investing is about making profits. That's it, full stop. In fact, we probably could have done the whole podcast with that sentence. <laughs> yes, yeah, we probably could have done. Well, before I let you go, and it's been an amazing, amazing interview. Thank you so much. I've got a bunch of notes which I'm going to follow up on. No, it's been um, fun. I want to. I want to ask you a question about, um, you know, if, uh, trying to spread the word about Bitcoin more. You clearly care about it and you see it and understand it, um, the Austrian economic side of it and you know the reach of humanity. Yep. Um, if there was one person that you could educate about Bitcoin who would then go out and share that message with their audience, who would that be and why? Wow, another unbelievably awesome question. Um, wow, that's such a great question. Uh, the Rock. Um, <laughs> No, I, I think it would be The Rock. I think, I think he's such a charismatic and dynamic figure, so recognizable all around the world, trusted. Um, and if he could become a spokesperson, um, you know, like the way Russell Okung has tried in the sports world or Dinwiddie and basketball, um, these influencers have such... And maybe LeBron would be a close second. Um, 
to The Rock, but I just think The Rock has this universal appeal. Um, he, he, across all age groups, across uh, all ethnicities, I, I just think he, it's actually such a great question. I don't know how I picked that, but I think he's the guy. We just need him with the people's eyebrow just to come out and talk about uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's, I was not expecting that answer at all, Mark. Not at all. I was expecting, uh, like, yeah, it's probably, a, probably a different answer. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, the, there, there, there are a lot of other, no, there are a lot of other easy answers. Like you could say, you know, Barack Obama, but, you know, then half the people would just not agree just because they don't agree, right? Or you could say, you know, Donald Trump. Well, that, that doesn't work either the other side. So politicians, I think, is a bad choice. Um, you know, you could talk about, you know, the Pope, right? I mean, most recognized person in the world or the Dalai Lama, the second most recognized person in the world. Both of those might be good choices. But um, I think in the world in which we live where media is the message and, and celebrity is influence, um, you know, it's probably, you know, Taylor Swift probably should be on that list. You know, somebody who, who just everybody knows and people trust. Uh, I'm still, I'm sticking with The Rock. I love the guy. And I like it. I mean, I think subconsciously you're going for a, a young demographic there for, for people to, um, to, perhaps not with a Pope, but definitely with Taylor Swift and, uh, and The Rock um, to try yep. and help those you know, like mid-teenagers uh, and slightly upwards start understanding a bit more about it. Um, yep. Love it. Thanks so much for your time. This is going to be an incredible episode. I can't wait to get it out there. Um, no, it was so much fun. And I, I said, I, 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 uh, I do a lot of these things. And, and uh, what I really, really enjoy is one, people who've prepared, two, who have really good, insightful questions, not the normal, you know, tell me about what you did in third grade, uh, which is not bad either, um, because that can be formative experiences. But uh, uh, I really, really like this last one because it is about education and getting the message out. And, uh, you know, I am passionate about it and I appreciate this uh, opportunity to, to do it today with you. Thank you so much. And thanks for um, leading the charge and going on CNBC. I know Pomp does as well. Um, the whole Bitcoin community is, uh, is cheering you. You know, we're behind your backs when you do that. And um, you guys are center stage at the moment. So thanks. Thanks for your work. No, thanks. And thanks for having me on. Well, listeners, I'm sure you are still with us at this stage because uh, I couldn't stop listening to Mark. I, I had to um, let him go in the end because you know an hour and a half was was all we had scheduled. Um, we managed to fill out every minute of it, every second, to be um, completely uh, honest. Uh, as soon as we finished recording that time, uh, he, he had to jump straight off. So there was uh, there was nothing. No golden nuggets were left on the table. Um, his insights unbelievable uh you know with such a solid background in uh financial markets and investing and understanding opportunities and the way he kind of described uh bitcoin and and the uh where he sees it playing out and going forward for the next uh five ten years and coming to that realization that is probably the best investment opportunity he's ever seen in his career uh you know I can't stop people saying this stuff. Um, it's it's nuts, and um, I'm really thankful to Mark for for taking the time to come on and and share this. You know, it's um, it's a new podcast, right? This five week old podcast. This guy's on CNBC. <laughs> you know, 
for him for, for for Mark to give up an hour and a half of his time to talk to me and to, to share this with the listeners is uh, very humbling indeed. And I really, really uh, appreciate that. Appreciate anybody that's listening to this, anybody that's going to share it, anybody that's going to tweet it out, send it to their friends. Um, thank you so much. Uh, reach out on Twitter at Princey1976. Go to the website, once-bitten.com. And, um, yeah, just keep spreading the word. Just help me um, keep uh, building out this, this educational tool. Have a great um, morning, afternoon, evening, night, wherever you are, and uh, thank you so much for listening. Go find Mark on Twitter, at Mark Yusko. He's, uh, he's a great guy and uh, appreciate everything he's done. Thanks, guys. Take care.